0: This will be the last Sunday that I'll be joining with you, and I just wanted to personally thank all of you for um, just welcoming Gavin and I to this community. It's been such a huge blessing to be a part of this church. This is a really awesome church, and I'm so thankful, so thankful to have been a part of it the last eight weeks. So thank you so much for um, letting me be a part of this really great, awesome family you guys have. And so um, let me pray for us again, and then we'll get right on to it. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this church, God, and I just pray that everyone in here would encounter you this morning, God. I pray that you would speak through me, Lord, and I pray that we can all just fall more in love with you this morning, God. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, I have the privilege to kind of wrap up the series that we've been going through called Created for a Purpose. And the last couple weeks, Pastor John's been going over a number of different topics that we were created for. Um, so, for the past five weeks, he talked about how we were created to gather, that we were created for stewardship, that we are created for telos, we are created for order, and that we are created for communion with God. And I don't know about you, but as I was sitting in the chairs listening to a lot of these sermons, a lot of times I found myself kind of thinking, and these are pretty tough, or I don't do this very well, especially like, just for an example, like stewardship, John was talking about how everything we have is God's, and God has given it to us, and we should treat it like it's God's, not ours, and I was just thinking about like, gosh, that's really hard, <laughs> because even though we were created to do these things, our sinful nature wants to battle against that, right? Our sinful nature wants to pull us from what God has created us to do, created our, our purpose, And so this morning, I want to talk about something that I think helps us do these things well. Helps us to learn how to do these things, okay? So Jesus, God, didn't want us for us to do these things alone, right? I think God gave us a way to learn how to do these things together. And so this morning, I want to talk about how we were created for discipleship. Now, this word discipleship can have a a number of meanings, And I hope this morning that we can kind of clear our palette, so to speak, to what the word discipleship is. Whatever connotations or ideas you have about discipleship, let's kind of put that aside and let's kind of journey together. My goal this morning is to hopefully better define discipleship or maybe even redefine it for some of you. So I think this is important. I think discipleship is important because Jesus actually commands it of us. This passage is called the Great Commission, and it's the very end of the Gospel of Matthew. And just to give us a little context for what's going on, Jesus has just risen from the dead at this point. He's met with a couple couple women, and he's now about to meet with his 11 disciples. So then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So Jesus gives his disciples this command Go and make disciples. And in this moment in history, I think it would be pretty clear what that means, right? Because Jesus has spent roughly three years with these people. He's been spending a lot of time with them. And so when Jesus says, go and make disciples, they're like, okay, we know how to do that. We've been discipled, right? But in our 21st century context, in our own kind of life, it's hard to picture what exactly that means when Jesus says, go and make disciples. It'd be a little different if Jesus said, go and make your bed or go and make a sandwich, those are things I do on a weekly basis. That was such a lame joke. That was my attempt at a joke. (laughs) That wasn't funny first service either, but I thought I'd give it a shot. But right, this needs a little defining, right? When Jesus says, go and make disciples, we're kind of like, huh. So this morning, I kind of want to go on a little journey through the gospels, and I want to look at three different instances, that Jesus, the three experiences that Jesus has with his disciples that kind of help us get, in a, get a better picture of what discipleship is. So the first story I want to look at is in Matthew chapter 8. And so rewind from the Great Commission. This, those were the last words Jesus says on this planet. So we're going to rewind now. To Matthew chapter 8. And at this point in Jesus' life and ministry, he's starting to really establish himself. People are starting to know who he is. He's been healing people. He's been teaching a lot. And one day, after Jesus heals somebody, he kind of tells his disciples, Hey guys, I want to go in a boat and go to the other side of this lake. So that's where we pick up the story. So then Jesus got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Suddenly, a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. So this lake, scholars say, is the Sea of Galilee. And this was a very unique body of water. So these storms would really, literally, as the text describes, come out of nowhere with giving sailors very little warning that they were coming. And what's crazy about these storms is they could produce surf as high as 20 feet. So this was scary. And we kind of get the sense of this, as the disciples react to what's going on. So then the disciples went and woke him saying, "Lord, save us. We're going to drown." So again, we get the sense just to give you a little more context, some of these disciples were fishermen. So they were experienced sailors, and if they're freaking out about what's going on, you know, that's that's not good. So Jesus replies to them, "You of little faith, why are you so afraid?" Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. So Jesus has this experience with the disciples. It's pretty unique. Jesus is doing something here. And I think Jesus is showing them, well, it's pretty clear that he is God, right? It's not the fact that Jesus just gets up there and he can command the weather. That's not the point. The point is Jesus is saying, I have authority over everything. And it's pretty powerful because the winds and the waves in this time in history were almost seen as gods because they were completely unpredictable and they were very powerful. And so when Jesus gets up there and he's like, be calm, be still, and it stops, Jesus is making a claim, I am God, and I have authority over all of this planet. It's pretty darn cool. And so I think Jesus is doing something here, right? He's working with his disciples, and I think he's going through like a discipleship training, if you will. And so the first thing that I see Jesus doing is he's training his disciples to see who God is. And I think that's also what we should take as we learn how to make disciples, and as he commands his disciples to make disciples, a lot of disciple-making, they put this into practice. They show people who God is. They could tell this story and see, see, Jesus was God. This is who God is. The second story I want to look at is when Jesus washes the disciples' feet. This is in John chapter 13. And just to give us a little context of what's going on, this part of Jesus' life We're going to fast forward now from the storm. We're going to fast forward to the last evening of Jesus' life. The last evening. And Jesus only has about four, maybe four or five hours left of freedom. of Ministry, okay? So let's keep that in mind. Verse 1 of John 13. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having Having loved his own who are in the world, he showed them the full extent of his love. So Jesus knows what's going on, right? It says right here in the text that he knows his time is very, very limited. He knows he's gonna to have to go back to the Father. And I want us to think about this. Kind of put yourself in Jesus' shoes here. You have four or five hours left of ministry. You're, you're God. You're the incarnate God on planet Earth, and you have four or five roughly hours left of freedom before he gets arrested. I don't know about you, but if I was Jesus, it's kind of fun to think about. If I was Jesus, I was God on the earth, and had just a couple hours left, I would be running around, I'd be healing people by the thousands, I'd be preaching to the biggest crowd I could find, I'd be doing triple backflips, I'd be like showing them bean and cheese burritos because they're awesome, or whatever, whatever, right because we think like man i only have a couple hours left i got to make a name for myself i got to show how awesome i am because i'm god right but jesus completely flips that on his head watch what he does so jesus got up from the meal took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him So Jesus has very little time to do ministry, and this is what he chooses to do. One of the most humble things he could have done. Now again, from our perspective and our context, washing feet is kind of weird. We don't practice that anymore, obviously. But what's going on is this was a very common practice in this time in history, but it was reserved for very specific people. So it was reserved for slaves to do their master's, It was for children to do to their parents. And it was for disciples to do to their rabbi or their teacher. And so what Jesus is doing is flipping all of that on his head. He's actually like shaming himself. Look at what Peter says as Jesus comes to him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? He's kind of like, Jesus, what are you doing? Because, we're dealing with a shame-honor culture. And we kind of think, like, what's the big deal? Just let him do it. But Peter, just a couple chapters ago, he's in some dialogue with Jesus, Jesus with all the disciples. And Jesus asks them at one point, he says, who do the people say that I am? And they kind of list off a couple names. And then he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, Jesus, you are the son of the living God. You're the Messiah, the Christ, the one we've been waiting for. And so Peter is like, Jesus, I can't let you do this. And basically Jesus says, Peter, you're not going to understand right now. Later you'll understand. And then this is what Peter responds. No, (laughs) you shall never wash my feet. So Peter is really concerned with the honor of Jesus here. He's really saying, Jesus, you're going to humiliate yourself. You're bringing shame onto your head by what you're doing. Why don't you get it? And Jesus basically responds and says, Peter, you're missing the whole point. This is what the kingdom of God is about. If you don't let me do this, you have no part with me. And then Jesus goes on and says, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So I think the second thing Jesus is training his disciples to do is to humbly serve one another. Jesus says what makes a disciple is they know who God is, they can see who God is, and they humbly serve one another. The next story I want to talk about is the Garden of Gethsemane. So fast forward maybe just an hour or two after that whole scene. After the Last Supper, after Communion, all of that, and now the disciples are in this garden. They went to a place called Gethsemane. Gethsemane. It's so hard to say. They said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took with him Peter and James and John and began to be distressed and agitated. He said to them, I am deeply grieved even to death. Remain here and keep awake. So again, we get another very interesting picture of Jesus. I don't know about you, but most of the time when I picture Jesus, I like to picture happy Jesus. Kind of the frolicking with butterflies, peaceful Jesus, right? Because Jesus is the son of God, right? He's perfect. He must not get sad or scared or... Afraid, right? That's maybe what we imagine. That's what I imagine, at least. And we get a picture of total darkness. I mean, the imagery here is so powerful, distressed and agitated, and he's so filled with sorrow, he feels like he's dying. It's heavy. Heavy language used in there. And I want us to think about how Jesus... Uses his disciples here. How he, in this moment of deep sorrow, of deep fear, I want us to really pay attention to how Jesus interacts with his disciples. Let's look at this. And going a little farther, he threw himself on the ground, this is Jesus, and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, which also was like, Daddy, Daddy, Father, for you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. He came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep awake one hour? Keep awake and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So Jesus asks two things of his disciples. He says, Please be here, be conscious of what's going on, and pray with me. What's fascinating to me is Jesus doesn't say, okay, Judas is coming. We need a game plan. Peter, James, you guys hide in the bushes. Tackle Judas as he walks up. I'll make a break for it. Right? He doesn't want like a five-step, okay, let's get to the drawing board and kind of figure something out here, right? And I also think, again, I try to put myself in Jesus' shoes. I'd be like, guys, can you just encourage me? (laughs) I'm about to die. I know I'm about to die. Can you tell me that I did a good job here on earth? Jesus doesn't want any of that. He doesn't want their advice. He doesn't want their encouragement. What he wants is for them to be there. To be conscious. To sit in the mess with him. To sit in the sorrow with him and to pray. I think about so many times in my life, when I've had a family member or a friend who's been in this garden, who's had so much sorrow and hurt and I'm so quick to just give them advice. So quick to say, oh, just read this Bible verse, it'll make you feel better. So quick to say, man, if you were more disciplined in your life, this wouldn't have happened. Or whatever, you fill in the blank. Whatever kind of advice you, I would give somebody in that situation. But what's so powerful about what Jesus says and what Jesus is presenting as good discipleship is to be consciously there, to be present, and to pray. Jesus says, All I want you to do is be here with me, to sit in my junk, sit in my mess, sit in my sorrow with me, and pray with me. So I think that's the third kind of theme, if you will of how Jesus trains his disciples. He wants them to see who God is. He wants them to humbly serve one another. And he wants them to be present and to pray. And obviously, these are things we can implement, right? As we follow the Great Commission living and we need to go make disciples. And to be honest, this whole practice of discipleship, this idea of discipleship has been very powerful in my own life. Um, when I went into sixth grade, that man there in the middle in the white shirt, you can kind of see me over his shoulder in the gray shirt. Sorry, it's a really bad picture. But um, that guy in the white shirt, um, when I first was going into sixth grade, I went to a youth group in my home church in Huntington Beach. And he was a youth pastor at the, at the youth group. And for some reason, he came up to me, I don't know if it was the Holy Spirit's prompting or my mother emailing him or whatever it was, but he went up to me and a group of my friends and he said, I want to do life with you guys. I want to hang out with you guys like once a week and just kind of get to know you and whatever. And his name's Eric. Eric started pouring into my life. He started reading the Bible with me. He started serving me, buying me, you know, Slurpees and candy, whatever, junior high, guy wants he started asking me hard questions like what's really going on in your life how are you really doing and then praying with me through that before i knew it he promised so i go through sixth grade seventh grade eighth grade and eric comes to me and my friends and he says guys i want to walk with you all the way through high school he said, I want to have one day every week that you can come to me no matter what's going on in your life. Whew. Seven years this guy promised to walk through life with me. Amazing, incredible. And really, to be honest, what struck me was not the fact that Eric was very knowledgeable in the Bible or that he had all the right things to say or whatever, that he was fun. What struck me, what hit home for me was the fact that there was another adult in my life besides my parents, besides my family that cared about me. That's what hit me. That there was another adult, for some reason, this guy wanted to hang out with me and my idiot friends once a week. And I was so confused by it. I said, there must be something going on in that guy's life. And I can honestly say I wouldn't be up here today without him. Because for so long, I just didn't care about God until maybe my sophomore year of high school, I started to see the truth of the gospel. But he was so powerful in that. And again, I'm not saying that every single person in this church needs to grab a group of kids and spend seven years of their life with them. This, I think Eric went above and beyond the call to make disciples. But it's just a great example. Another picture here, my mom, she's the second one in the sunglasses. Um kind of similar thing happened. A youth pastor came to my mom, and, she, and he said, Didi, my mom, um, would you be interested in kind of doing life together with five high school girls? And at first she was like, what? <laughs> I'm a mom. Like, what, how can I relate to five high school girls? Are you kidding? And eventually she continued to pray about it and seek God in it, and eventually she said Yes. And she started doing these things. She started reading the Bible with them. She started serving them and just doing life together, asking them the hard questions. How are you really doing? And praying with them. And she really started to have an impact on their lives. One day I was home. This was probably about a month ago. And I heard the girls talking. I was in my room because high school girls are very loud. And I heard one of them say, what do you want to do for the last day of school? And the other one responded, Let's come over here and hang out with Dee Dee. And I was kind of like, what? No offense to my mom, love my mom, but on the last day of school, a high school girl wants to go and hang out with my mom? I was struck by that, and I was thinking about that. I was like, what? How does that even make sense? And you know what it was? These girls saw something in my mom. Again, it wasn't the fact that she had her life all together and that she's perfect or anything like that. It was the fact that she cared about them. There was another adult in their life willing to encourage them, to spend time with them, pray with them. They saw something in her that was attractive, and it was the spirit of the living God. And they couldn't get enough of it. On their last day of school... They wanted to hang out with my mom when I didn't want to be around any adults on my last days of school. I just go crazy, but never mind with that. Um, Again, that model can be a little intimidating. I'm not saying that God, discipleship is purely you getting with a group of kids and spending time with them all the time. It's not necessarily what discipleship is. There's lots of things that we can do to pursue discipleship. To live out the Great Commission one way that I was thinking about is maybe you could pursue a friendship that you already have. Maybe be more intentional in that friendship. Maybe that friend, you just kind of sit there and hang out and you don't really get deep and it's just all servicey. What if you went deep? What if you pulled out a Bible and you said, hey, let's go through this together. Let's learn about this. What if you decide to serve that person? What if you went over to your friend's house and just started doing their dishes or their laundry Humble service. Or what if you started asking the hard questions? Like, how are you really doing? And instead of just taking off, sitting there with them in it, praying with them, being intentional in that. You could also serve in the children's ministry. I mean, that's like picture perfect discipleship, right? They got it all laid out for you. You give a little Bible lesson, and then you can serve them. And again, you can continue to ask them about their lives, encourage them. Or maybe it's serving in a youth ministry, becoming a leader. Or it could even be as simple as dropping off some cookies, baking some cookies and kind of sticking your face in and say, hey, everybody, I bought you some cookies. <laughs> Kids love that, love cookies. So there's so many things you can do to pursue discipleship, to live out this calling that Jesus gives us to go and make disciples. It doesn't have to be placed in some little box, in some sort of fitted structure. Jesus just wants you to be intentional with people. And I would really encourage you guys to pray this week. Pray this week for God to really open some doors in your life to bring in some young people. And if maybe if you're a young person in this room, seek out somebody that's a little farther along than you, somebody in love with Jesus, and figure out how they do things. Figure out how they live their life. Because we need each other so bad. The young people need you so bad. There's so many things calling for our attention. So many things. Cell phones, I don't want to do the whole social media rant or whatever, but there are seriously so many ways to get connected with so many different people. What if you were intentional with somebody and you changed their life? Decided just to walk through life together. As Ajua comes back up and the worship girls, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we are created for discipleship. I thank you that we were created to be discipled and to disciple others. I pray that you would give us the courage and the strength to pursue that calling, Lord. I thank you that there's so much grace, that we don't have to be perfect, that we don't have to have our life all together. But if we just show up for you, God, you will do something. I thank you so much for Living Spring Church and what a gift it is, Father. Continue to bless this church. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.